Proverbs chapter 10. We're just making our way through the book of Proverbs. Um, we actually, two weeks ago, just finished our first section of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9, uh, where we saw this war of words, this war between wisdom and folly, uh, or also the seductress, and we saw the battle between those words, sin and temptation trying to vie for our affections, for our minds and our hearts. Tonight we're going to begin a second section in the book of Proverbs. As you'll notice, these are very short sayings. This is probably what your mind thinks of when you hear the term Proverbs. Uh, these are short sayings. Usually there's two different sections to each verse. Uh, some people call them versets. Um, other people call them some different things depending on uh, who you're listening to. You might hear them referred to as couplets. But by and large, each verse is usually made up of two sections, usually one part and then the second part will contrast the first part. Um, and so we'll see there are two ways, just like there were two voices in chapters 1 through 9, we're going to see that there are typically two different ways. There's God's way of doing things and there's man's way of doing things. Uh, there's good and there's evil. There's righteous and wicked and there, there are the wise and there are fools. And so all throughout this chapter, uh, uh, chapter 10, we will see these contrasts between these two different viewpoints. Uh, let's begin in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, remember he wrote most of these Proverbs. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Now we return to a very familiar theme in, in this book of Proverbs. Remember this is written to youth primarily to equip the youth for life. And, uh, and so we return to this father and mother though the tone is a little bit different. This is not the father and the mother pleading with the son to listen anymore. Rather we're seeing the outcome of a life, of a character that's developed in the child. Uh, and so wisdom is a blessing to the father. It's a blessing to the parents. As a parent, when you see your kids living well, you see them following the Lord. I mean, that's the greatest desire of my own heart. If nothing else, I just want my boys to walk with Christ. I want them to know the Lord. If they know him, everything else will fall into place because he will lead them. He will direct them. He will guide them. And so a son who makes a glad father, uh, a wise son makes a glad father. And ultimately the greatest wisdom is to understand our weakness, right? To understand that we are sinners, that we need a savior. We need Jesus Christ. And so we pray that our children come to the knowledge of the Lord. And this is a blessing to those, not just for family, but to all who come in contact with them. Imagine our, our children who have the wisdom of God going out into this world that is dark, that is perverse. But just think of how bright their light will shine as this world gets darker and how much of a blessing they will be if they're full of the wisdom of God to people. You know, they won't be ripping people off. They won't be living for themselves. They won't be taking uh, and not giving. Rather, they'll be uh, full of God's wisdom. And so they'll be a blessing, not just to their family, but to all society. But also, we see the flip side of that. And that is, a foolish son is the grief of his mother. You know, isn't it something about a mother that she sees uh, her children through such a love, loving lens? And it does something to a heart of a mother like no, no one else when they see that child straying from the path. Imagine if you were Eve 
And imagine seeing uh, Cain and Abel, two of your own children, and you see Cain killing his brother, your son. And the first death in human history was a brother killing a brother. And what was that like for Eve? To, to experience the, the impact of sin, her sin, Adam's sin, and seeing the ramifications through her children as well. And so it's heartbreak for a mother to see this folly in her kids. And sin, therefore, it, remember, it doesn't just affect us, right? No man is an island. My sin affects everyone else, whether it be our family, whether it be our church. You realize if one member within our body is struggling, it affects the entire body. And so we as a church, we need to be encouraging one another, uh, challenging one another to walk with the Lord because we're all sons and daughters of, of God. And so he's speaking to all of us here, not necessarily just youth. Uh, verse 2 and we're gonna, you're going to see, it's going to switch subjects quite a bit. Very different from what we're used to. It's not sort of a building block like, like we were looking at in the book of Philippians on Sundays. Verse 2, treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but the righteousness delivers from death. And so I, I believe as I look at this verse, this is a verse of eternal significance, right? Isn't death the great equalizer? You know, there are statistics out there, but there's one proven statistic, and that is 10 out of 10 people die. But the question is, what remains at death? Do riches and treasure remain at death? Especially people who have worked their whole lives saving and, and, and working and striving. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. Perhaps you've heard the saying, you've never seen a, a U-Haul pulling, or a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it. I actually used that saying once in, in a previous church, and after the service, I had a couple come up to me, and they said, you know what, we actually saw this once. And a couple weeks later, they bring me a Polaroid picture, and here, I guess, when they were growing up, there was a family that lived down the street who uh, had a hearse as the family car. <laughs> And apparently this family decided to move, and so they hooked it up to a U-Haul. And so I can't say that anymore. I can't say you've never heard a, or you've never seen a, a, a hearse pulling a U-Haul, because I have now. But the bottom line is death is the equalizer. Jesus himself said, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And there are those today who essentially sell their soul for money, for pleasure, for the things of this world that ultimately do not last. That's the, the challenge of it. As we see this, treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but the righteousness delivers from death. Now, what, what do we mean here? Righteousness delivers from death. First of all, who is righteous? We know from the scripture that there are none that are righteous. No, not one, right? In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it says, all of our righteousness is but filthy rags in the sight of God. That is the best you and I have to offer, left to ourselves, is like filthy, bloody rags, handing them to the Lord and saying, this is what I got for you, God. Will you accept it? That's the best we have to offer a just and a holy God. And so the righteousness, I believe that this is speaking of ultimately, the righteousness that delivers from death, therefore has to be a righteousness that comes from someone else. It has to come from God who alone is righteous. 
And we know as we've gone through the New Testament in this church that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is credited to your account. It's imputed righteousness. So that you receive the righteousness of Christ by faith when you put your faith and your trust in him. And then what that does is we see this term righteous all throughout the book of Proverbs. Is Here's what this does. Number one, God then sees us as righteous judicially from his perspective. Why? Because we're in Christ and he sees us in Christ. And so positionally in Christ, we are therefore the righteous. Not because it's of our own righteousness. No, we have obtained the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our accounts. And therefore, when God sees us, he does not remember our sin any longer, right? Praise the Lord. He nailed it to the tree that his son bore for the sin of the world, for us. And so it's imputed righteousness from God. But guess what? It doesn't stop there, right? It's not just get saved and then, you know, the rest of your life just live however you want. No, what happens when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are born again of the Spirit of God. And now he begins a work of righteousness in our lives. He transforms us as we respond in obedience. And so you may want to call that practical righteousness. And so God is working a practical righteousness in our lives. We are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, hopefully the longer we walk with the Lord. And so there's a practical righteousness. Another way of thinking of it is this way. As a Christian, we live from our identity in Christ. He declares us in Christ to be righteous. And so now, walk it out. Live from that identity. God calls you this. You're no longer a slave of sin, right? You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sin. You've been made alive with Jesus Christ. God sees you in Christ. Now live from that new identity. Live a righteous life. Why? Because Christ is in you. And he gives you every resource to live a godly life in Christ. And it's all found in him, right? And so we obtain righteousness from the Lord, and then we walk it out practically in our everyday lives. And so that righteousness from the Lord delivers from death. It's not our own, it's his. Verse 3, And the Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. And so notice the Lord is the agent who feeds the hungry righteous and starves the greedy. I like that. Those who are Christ can rejoice, even in the midst of life's difficulties. We can actually be like the prophet Habakkuk, who said this in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. He said, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills. And so as the, as the Lord is with us, the Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, even in the midst of difficulties, because we know as believers we're not insulated from difficulties. But in the midst of that, we've learned this in the book of Philippians, we can rejoice in the Lord always, can't we? We can rejoice in the Lord always, not in our circumstances, but in him. And he will not allow our souls to famish, though he casts away the desire of the wicked. 
He who has a slack hand becomes poor. Remember, this is old lazy bones we looked at a couple weeks ago. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. And he who sleeps in harvest is the son who causes shame. Again, we see this warning against laziness. And this was an issue in, in Solomon's day. This was an issue also in Paul's day. If you recall, if you've read the book of Thessalonians, remember that Paul had written to the Thessalonians uh, and he told them that they knew how he lived among them when he was with them. They labored, he and his companions, for the sake of the gospel day and night. They didn't just take handouts from the church. They didn't want to be a burden to the church. And so Paul worked as a tent maker. He labored with his hands and then he ministered to the body in Thessalonica. And so even, he said, when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's strong words that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. And so in Solomon's day, he warns us about this slack hand that becomes poor. In Paul's day, he warns the church in Thessalonica that this is an issue that if it's not addressed, these people become busybodies. And these are the people who typically, right? Have nothing else to do but talk. And that talk, we'll see later on here, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And so it's so important that, this, that we not be slack with our hands. There's this poorness that comes from that. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. And notice what he goes on to say. He who sleeps in harvest is the son who, who causes shame. If it's harvest time, you better be working. In other words, the time is short. And it's time to labor. And so if the son is just sitting back, kicking back, and saying, ah, oh, it's the harvest, I'm just going to relax, you know, that's going to not only bring poverty, that's going to bring shame to the family. And especially to, to the people that Solomon was writing, you're talking about an agricultural society where you have big families and where families typically turn over the family business to who? To the sons, to the children. And so if the child mismanages that business, who does it bring reproach upon? The family name. And so this is something that he warns about. And, and I, I've seen this through the years. You know, you see a father works so hard, builds a company, sweat, blood, tears. He hands it down to a son and all of a sudden it just falls apart. There's not that character. There's not that, uh, that, that determination. There's not that hardworking spirit that was maybe bestowed uh, upon him. So verse 6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. That word blessings, is, it's a word that refers to the prayerful blessing that sometimes they would place hands on someone's head and you would bless the person. And it's contrasted with this violence that covers or overwhelms the mouth. It's speaking of someone's words, the words of the wicked. And so you have this contrast between this incredible blessing. In fact, you're actually blessing someone. You're putting your hand upon that person and bestowing a, a, a blessing. And then you have this, this violence spewing out of the mouth or overwhelming the mouth as the words come forth. 
Blessings and cursings, right? Opposites that we see here, depending on what we do with God's word. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. <laughs> he doesn't mince words, does he? I, I think the idea when it says here that the, uh, the memory of the righteous is blessed, the, the blessing is that we invoke the name of a righteous person to bless someone. In other words, what's the highest blessing that we can give someone today? I bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the highest blessing. Why? Because it's the highest name. And so if you offer a blessing to someone's name, again, the, the idea is this is a person of the highest integrity, the highest character. But we see here the name of the wicked rots away. Now today there's a saying that, you know, sometimes even negative press is better than no press at all. You ever hear that saying? That may be true if you're trying to climb the ladders of the world, but I'll tell you what, on the day of judgment, it's not so. I would not rather have negative press than no press at all on the day of judgment. We do know as believers, this is the incredible thing as believers, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, do you realize the Lord's going to give you a new name? And it's a name that only he knows. I always wonder about that. What, what's that about, Lord? That you're going to give us a new name, a name that only you know. I believe it's going to be something so special that only he and you understand, perhaps, of what that name will be. But the righteous will acquire a new name. The wicked, therefore, though, in contrast to that, their name will rot. The wicked will rot here, it says. Ultimately, their name, they will be thrown into the lake of fire to burn forever, no matter how well their name was known in this earth. Think of how many people are striving today to get their name known. I'm not just talking about people, you know, the Hollywood. I'm talking about people on Facebook. I'm talking about people on Twitter, people taking, posting pictures of themselves or, you know, every idle time that they're doing, they're posting it online for the world to see. What's that about, right? And I see so many people trying to make a name for themselves. But if that name is not grafted into the cross of Christ, if that name is not found in Christ, that name will rot. It will perish. You know, the average person is forgotten within, what, a generation or two? Even if you're famous, maybe you're lucky enough to have your name last. And, you know, if it is wicked, if you are, say, an Adolf Hitler, that's not a very pleasant name to remember. It's a name that people use, usually not in a pleasant manner. But the name of the wicked will rot. But the memory of the righteous is blessed. Verse 8, the wise in heart will receive commands, very similar to what we've already seen throughout this whole book, but the prating fool will fall. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. And again, the idea is our actions matter, right? And it affects how others perceive us and also what others will receive from us. We can either be a blessing or we can hurt others. But we will reap what we sow. Verse 10. He who winks with the eye causes trouble. Again, we see the winking guy here. But a prating fool will fall. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life. But violence covers the mouth of the wicked. And so just note how, how we need that today, right? How we need people's mouths to be a well of life. 
I was just talking to someone earlier about message boards and how it's so easy to just spew stuff on that message board, whatever you're responding to, whether it be Facebook or some type of YouTube post or whatever. You know, sometimes you'll follow conversations and you'll see 50, 100, 200 different responses to something. Usually those things go into tangents and whatnot. But isn't it easy today to just spew nonsense without any thought of repercussions, without any thought of how this might affect someone else? And how I believe we need so deeply today these words that are a well of life. Words that bring refreshment to people. Isn't that what the Word of God does? You know, you can, you can read any other book in the world, but there's no book that actually speaks to that well of life as the Word of God. It's living. It's active. It refreshes our soul. You know, I could read a thousand pages of the best authors, but when you get into the Word of God, it does something to our spirit because it ministers to our spirit, right? It's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And His Word refreshes us. It refills us. It rejuvenates us. You know, so often I, I come to a midweek service, you know, and you're exhausted, right? You're tired. It's Thursday night. And some people might say, why in the world would I go to church on Thursday night? I'm too tired. But if you're like me, I usually leave Thursday night more rejuvenated than by far than when I came here. Or Sunday night prayer. You know, Sunday night, by the, by, the end of, by the beginning of prayer Sunday, I'm just spent. I'm ready to just fall asleep and, you know, lay in my couch and, you know, just relax. But then we come together and we pray. And it's so special to leave here on a Sunday evening after an hour, hour and a half of prayer. And doesn't God just bring that refreshment? that refilling, that rejuvenation. But I also know the flip side of that. I know what it's like to, to run on empty. And that's not very fun. When you're dry, when you're Christian experience, you're just going through the motions. You have no it. You know, the Spirit's presence, you need that. And I just pray that when you come and you, we gather and we spend time in the Word of God, maybe you are that, in that condition tonight, I pray that you would leave here filled and that God's Word would just be that well of, of life that we so desperately need today. Verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. That would be a good one to memorize, right? Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. What a contrast that we see right before our eyes. We see hatred that literally pokes in the eye of, of, of the other person and creates strife, division. Uh, this, this is something that ultimately destroys. It's like a fire that devours. And we contrast that with this love that covers all sins. If you remember, Peter actually quotes from this in, second, or in 1 Peter 4.8. He said, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For what love covers a multitude of sins? And while those who hate desire to take others down, the one with love, quote, cherishes the wrongdoer as a friend to be one, not as an enemy with whom to get even. I like that. The one with love cherishes the wrongdoer as a friend to be one, not as an enemy with whom to get even. And, and, and he goes on to say this, instead of placing the transgressors on the stage and withdrawing their veil to expose their faults and, and get revenge, love endures his wrongs to reconcile him and save him from his death. 
if we're honest with one another, wasn't there that one person that you wanted to just put there up on the stage? Remove the curtain and let everyone see who this person really is. Maybe they have other people fooled. They could be at your job and you're just like, man, this person is not who, this, who he pretends to be. And you just, with everything within you, just wishes that that person would just be exposed. And yet, contrary to that, this love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that what God did for us? When I think about what the Lord has done for me personally, I really can't speak for you. You know, I, I don't know what sin is in your life. I only know what, what sin is in my life. And I think about the mercy of God. I think about the fact that at the cross, he's washed everything clean. It's as if this entire sanctuary is just full of my sin. And he cleared it. He washed it. And then someone does something to me. And it's like a little bulb on a tree. And I want everyone to see that bulb. I want to light that bulb up and I want it to burn, right? Because that's the, the hatred of the human heart. It, 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 it hates. And yet the love of God ultimately covers this multitude. Isn't this what God wants to pour into our lives through his spirit? You, know, you can't love the way that God commands you to love on your own. Did you ever learn that? Did you ever try to love the way that Jesus told us to love? See, the Old Testament said that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. But Jesus said he gave us a new commandment, right? He said that. John actually tells us about that in 1 John as well. A new commandment. That word, it doesn't mean new like it's never existed. It means fresh. And he's given us this fresh commandment. Not that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, but that we should love one another as he has loved us. You see, he set the bar even higher than the old covenant. The old covenant said love one another as you already love yourself. That's a given. We all love ourselves. We may not like ourselves, right? You realize you can hate yourself and love yourself at the same time, biblically speaking? You can hate yourself. You can hate what you've become. But you still love yourself. Why? Because you want what's best for you. In fact, even someone who goes to that extreme where they're in the pits of the pits and they think suicide is the only answer, at that moment... It's because they think that's what's best for them or for other people. So we can hate ourselves and love ourselves at the same time, biblically speaking. But Jesus said, I don't want you to just love others as you already love yourself. I want you to love others as I have loved you. What's that love like? That's a love that lays down one's life for the sake, not just of others, for the sake of the person who's offended. It's not just that he died for his friends. He died when we were yet enemies. That's when the love of God is demonstrated for us, right? And as followers of Christ, that's what he wants to do in us. He wants us to love the unlovable. He wants us to love people who don't deserve it. Why? Because I don't deserve his love. And here's the thing. The more you understand Christ's love for you the more freely you'll express that love to other people. So if I have trouble loving people, the issue's not with the people, the issue's with the Lord. And I need to understand his love for me first. I need to understand the cross. And the more I make that cross of Christ personal, the more I believe this verse will show true in our lives. Love covers all sins, not some sins, right? 
It doesn't say that it covers the sins that are, you know, an accident. No, love covers all sins. It, it looks not just for getting something from the person and revenge. Rather, it extends this love to the guilty party. And this is ultimately the love of God. It goes to those who've wronged you in a gracious spirit. Maybe it does confront, right? Sometimes love does cause us to confront those who've harmed us. But it's in the spirit of how you go at that person. Hatred stirs up strife. And so when I go to people in that, that, that attitude of hatred, strife will be the fruit of that. That will be the fruit of the conversation. It's kind of like going to someone after they've wronged you, and if you haven't made things right in your heart first, maybe you go at them and you attack them, and all of a sudden they get on the defense, and now they're raising their voice, you're raising your voice, and pretty soon it's just one big mess because it goes back to the heart here. Notice the terms hatred and love. These are issues of the heart. This isn't just outward action. This is inward attitudes that he's speaking of here. Verse 13. <coughs> Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding. But a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Now we're going to talk about the rod a little bit here in Proverbs as we go through this uh, book of the Bible. As a, as a young boy, I didn't care for that term very much. Um, in our household, we typically called it a paddle. Uh, we actually had a pretty big paddle. It was made of solid wood. Uh, and that baby, that baby hurt when you got hit by it. Uh, but the rod in this case, it was from a tree. And people, they would use it for weapons. They would use it for staffs. But it was also used as a rod of correction. And typically, they would hit the back of the person who was in need of that correction. Uh, we know that the Lord chastens those whom he loves, right? He disciplines us. It's not that he punishes us. No, he disciplines us. He chastens us. The difference is the motive. See, punishment is meant, intended to harm. But discipline or chastening is meant to correct. And so the rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. I don't want to learn by the rod. I don't know about you. I would much rather read the book of Proverbs... And learn wisdom from the Lord directly than have to learn from the school of hard knocks. Because the rod leaves scars, doesn't it? Even though we're forgiven of all of our sin in Christ, the rod still leaves scars. And we can be carrying those scars for years, even though we're forgiven. And carrying them on our backs. And we may never fully leave those scars until we see our Savior face to face. But praise the Lord, when you see him face to face, those scars will even be washed away. And there will be no more tears in heaven, right? All of our sin will be a, a distant memory. This battle that we find ourselves in today will be no more. I, I long for that day where there's not that flesh and spirit battle. You know, when I don't need the rod anymore. Sometimes I find myself being this one who's devoid of understanding. You know, sometimes it's just the head's hard, right? You can't learn any other way. Verse 14, wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. And the idea here is that the fool, his mouth is near destruction. It's, it's something that's almost coming around the corner. That it's just a matter of time until this, this foolish person ends up destroying everything. They may get all the blessings and things may look good for a season, but by and large, destruction is near. 
And you contrast that with the person who stores up knowledge. That's why we're here tonight, Lord willing. We're storing up the wisdom of God so that we don't lose the blessings of the Lord. One of the greatest difficulties I believe in life is this. When you get a blessing and you lose it because you don't have the character to keep it. And then there's regret. Then there's knowledge of the blessing and there's remorse. And so he's speaking to us so that we develop the character to keep the blessing, to keep the relationship, to keep the job, to keep this or that, the, the blessings that God wants to bestow upon us. Verse 15, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is his poverty. Now, this is a little bit different than what we've been seeing. So far, every verse has usually had a positive and a negative. This one actually has two negatives, if you're paying attention. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. At first glance, you may think that's a good thing. But it's actually not necessarily a good thing because he thinks his wealth provides him with protection and stability. And in a day and age when we throw money at any problem, this seems to solve a lot of issues today. If you got money, you have less problems, so to speak. Talk to a rich person, and I promise you they'll advise you otherwise. Uh, but no, nevertheless, this rich man, his, his trust is in his riches. They're his security blanket. The foolish, though, or should I say, the, in this case, the, the poor person doesn't have that security blanket. To fall back on. And so when destruction comes for the poor, there's poverty. There's no way out. They have no resources to, to, to help them with. But here's what happens by and large. Riches profit not on the day of wrath. See, the rich man may have the security blanket. It, it may be for his whole life. But when he meets his maker, those riches mean nothing. But the poor man, though he may temporarily be at a disadvantage in this world, and he may not have that security blanket, we know that one's present poverty has no bearing on one's future glory, does it? And many times it's the, it's the poor in our world who are rich in faith. It's the poor who are many times most joyful and rejoice most freely because they're not tied down by the things that the rich are tied down with. You know, when you're rich, you have to do so much to try to keep it, right? And it's, sometimes it's such a burden. Remember Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who had it all, and Lazarus was there begging, and he never even gave him the time of day. And we see at the end of the day, we see Lazarus there in Abraham's bosom, at Lazarus in paradise awaiting future glory, and we see the rich man there just, just wanting a drop of water for his tongue, just wanting to warn those who are still here on this earth. And we understand that even if a, a man would come back from the dead, if they won't listen to the prophets, if they won't listen to the word of God, they won't listen to a man who resurrects from the dead. Sound familiar? See, we serve a king who resurrected from the dead, but people don't care about that necessarily. And so if they don't believe the word of God, though, the prophets and the word that spoke of Jesus, then they won't believe the rich man, even if he was to return from the dead. But the rich man's wealth, it's his strong city for now. Good luck with that. The destruction of the poor, it's their poverty. The labor of the righteous leads to life. The wages of the wicked to sin. And I, I would just say this. 
isn't this verse true of the Lord Jesus Christ? Look at that again. The labor of the righteous leads to life. And the wages of the wicked to sin. I, I see myself in the second part of that verse. But I see Jesus in the first part of this verse. You know, he's the only righteous one, right? And his labor truly led to life. It was through his labor of going to the cross that you and I could be born again. Our wage was sin, and that leads to death. But thank the Lord that, that he leads to life. He who keeps instruction in the way of life is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. He refuses to listen. It's called pride, right? Whoever hides hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. Now, in verse 18, we, we see the implications of the mouth and the words that come from it. Notice that the liar and the slanderer are lumped together in this statement here. You have the liar, the one who hides hatred, and then the slanderer, the one who spreads slander. And in the Hebrew, this is very interesting, the words that are used in Hebrew reinforce what it means by using different sounds. And if, I, if you were to read the Hebrew of this, there's this, there's a bunch of S's in it. And it almost sounds like a hissing. And it, it gives you a picture of this lying lips. This serpent, if you will. And this, this hatred that's hidden. Remember, the enemy himself, he, he comes as an angel of light, right? He disguises himself. And the person who has these lying lips, his hiding, hiding hatred. Now, why are they hiding hatred? Probably not popular. They probably have a reason for that. They're, they're using this person for, for some purpose of their own, no doubt. The slanderous lips, it, it speaks of doing this publicly. But notice both are the issues of the heart. Whether it's lying to cover up the hatred, or whether it's the slander and tearing people down. They're both issues of the heart. Jesus said, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. And so these are issues of the heart. In fact, we'll just close in a couple more verses here. Um, I want us to see this, though, because he's, he's speaking about the mouth. Doesn't the mouth or the tongue, it's a little thing that boasts great things. It's, it's like that little rudder, James tells us, that controls the ship. That the tongue is so, it can be so powerful and so deadly. And so in the multitude of words... He's continuing on with the theme here. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Okay? And so the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Every time I hear this verse, the person I think of is Peter. Because Peter has that open, open mouth syndrome of opening his mouth, putting his foot in his mouth. If you recall when they were at the transfiguration... And he opens his mouth and he said to make three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. What's interesting is that we're told, I think it's in Mark, that he did this because he did not know what to say. And so he's standing there, he beholds Jesus' glory emanating from within, the transfiguration of the Son of God, and he's speechless, he doesn't know what to say, so what does he do? He says something. And I find myself in that case so often, you know, just shut up, Luke. Don't say anything. And I find myself talking and talking and talking. And the more I talk, the more I'm prone to say something stupid, right? 
that sin is not lacking in the multitude of words. We would be wise to be like a poet who calculates every single word in the verse and makes sure that every word fits that verse perfectly. Or may I say this, we would be very wise to restrain our lips. And that speaks of humility. That speaks of the fact that we realize that our words are lacking. But it also points us to the fact that God's word is sufficient. Isn't it true that we need the Lord's word? And we need to speak the Lord's word with the right heart, of course, with the right attitude, with the right spirit. And, and, and just in closing, we'll, we'll, we'll stop there. But I just want to stop with this thought here. I, I, remember, I remember years ago at Penn State going through counseling classes. <coughs> and I remember learning about all the different psychological theories of counseling. And it's incredible how many theories there are out there. You know, even in the midst of, say, psychoanalysis, uh, right? You speak to four different people who practice psychoanalysis, they're going to have totally different theories of counseling because there's no foundation. And I remember listening to all these different theories, reading about all these different theories. I mean, it, it drives you crazy thinking about, well, which one would I choose, you know? What will I use in counseling from that perspective? And here's what I've learned through the years of counseling hundreds and hundreds of men at both the Bowery and at the Salvation Army. I can speak a thousand words and they can do nothing to a person. But when God gives you a word from his word, God's one word can accomplish what a million human words never can accomplish. That's what I've learned through the years of counseling. That my words... I think I know what the issue is, and I usually don't. I can compartmentalize people into the neat little box, and oh, you struggle with this, so let me give you this scripture like it's medicine and a prescription. But it's the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God and applies it directly to our lives. And that's what we need. We don't need the multitude of human words. We need the wisdom of God's Word, a timely Word from His Word, directed by His Holy Spirit. And that's my prayer as we as you meet with one another in the church, as you congregate with your family members, it's the holiday season, be praying, Lord, let my words be few, but let, the, let them be meaningful. Let me speak a word, Lord. Would you give me a word for Uncle Fred? Lord, he needs you. He is on a path that leads to destruction, Lord. He's like the fool that we're just reading about here in Proverbs, Lord. Will you give me a word from your word for, for him, for her? And pray and ask the Spirit of God to speak through you. And let your few words be meaningful. Let them be meaningful. I remember, real quick, I, you know, I'm getting going on this. I could talk about this all night. But I, I remember I was saved for a couple years and I was doing campus ministry. I was uh, going around and just sharing Christ with different people on Penn State's campus. And I come across this really intelligent guy, much more intelligent than me. And I forget, he was in some type of science. And so we're talking and I'm trying to combat, you know, some of his theories and my theories. And he's going to blow me out of the water because I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. You know, and I never forget this though. The Spirit of God, and this is not like me, trust me. The Spirit of God gave me a word for this guy. Because he was very angry with God. And he said, ah, I don't want anything to do with, you know, your God, this and that. And I said, that's because you're proud. And I said, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And 
I remember saying that and like stepping back and thinking, what did I just say to this guy? You know, he's going to kill me. But you, I, I couldn't believe the look on his face when I spoke those words, God resists the pride and gives grace to the humble. I said, that's because you're not willing to humble yourself. And that was the first breakthrough I had in that conversation with this guy. Where he is today, I have no clue. But I'm pretty sure he remembers this little white guy coming up to him and telling him that he's too proud uh, for the Lord. But anyhow, speak the word of God with God's spirit. Bless those who you come in contact with this holiday season. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your word. Thank you that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And surely your words are not our words, Lord. We realize that every word that we speak will be weighed. And um, God, help us to measure our words, help our words to be few. But Lord, help us to seek those opportunities to share your word with people that we come in contact, Father. Would you speak to us, speak through us, and help us to be the well of life. That, Lord, we would point people to the source of life. The one who gave his life for the sin of the world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.